And you can have a seat and turn to John chapter 8. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John. And Jesus' popularity peaked in John chapter 6 when he fed the 5,000. And it is going to crater um, right after his resurrection. When the book of Acts tells us that there were 120 people who had gathered to pray. So think about Jesus' successful ministry in John chapter 6. Probably 10,000 people up there uh, being fed, including men, women, and children, as he miraculously took a few pieces of bread, a few pieces of fish, and fed the whole crowd. Uh, In John 7 and 8, what we've seen him do is thinning the herd. Uh, He's been saying things that are incredibly offensive. And in John chapter 8, he's going to turn the volume up on offense. And so we're going to do something a little bit interesting because this is a lot of words. And sometimes when there are a lot of words, it's easy for me to get lost and you to get lost and we kind of miss the meaning. So I thought it would be a good idea. We're going to read a little bit of the passage up front. We're going to read the back end of the passage. Then we're going to read an Old Testament story that I think uh, connects the two. And then we'll go back and do every verse. That makes sense? No, you don't. You, you, you didn't look like you were following me on that. Just trust me. Here we go. Let's read verses 31 through 34. So this is the beginning of the passage we're looking at today. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now let's jump down to the end of chapter eight. Verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So now I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3, where we will see a story that connects the beginning of the passage and the very end of the passage that we just read. Exodus chapter 3, and I believe Jesus has this story in mind and is choosing language in John chapter 8 that intentionally comes from Exodus chapter 3. Actually, let's start in chapter 2, verse 23. So just a few verses before chapter 3. During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So Moses is a shepherd. He's way out in the wilderness watching over his flock. He sees a bush that is on fire but is not being consumed. And out of the bush, God speaks to him. And God says to Moses, who again is a shepherd, I want you to go to Egypt where the Egyptians have been oppressing my people, Israel, in slavery. And you are going to rescue them out of slavery. And Moses says, say that I do this. Say that I go down to your people and I say to them, I'm here to rescue you. God has sent me to you and they ask me what your name is. And God gives him his name, although it's not a name, it's a phrase. I am who I am. You shall tell them I am has sent me to you. So let's go back then to John chapter 8 where Jesus is teaching. And he starts our passage today by saying, if you are a slave to if you sin, then you are a slave to sin. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And then at the end, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. So I think Jesus has all this in mind when he's teaching the Israelites there in the temple or outside of the temple in John chapter 8. So let's go back there and let's see how Jesus gets to a teaching about being free from the slavery of sin to referring to himself as I am. And I want you to notice two things that Jesus is trying to show them that they are in fact slaves to sin and that he has been sent to set them free. Verse 31 again. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? So Jesus is saying, you need to be set free. And they say, we don't need to be set free. We're not prisoners. Very truly, I tell you, verse 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus says, if you are, in fact, a slave to sin, you can't will yourself free. And then he uses a very practical reference. If you were a forced servant in someone's house, you can't just leave. Uh, somebody in the family has to set you free. You have to be set free, in this case, by the son. Verse 37. 
I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I've seen in the father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father. So Jesus says to them, you're trying to kill me saying that out loud. We've already seen that in secret a few places in the last few chapters. In John chapter six, they were trying to make him king. And ever since then, they've been trying to kill him. So he says it out loud. So everybody knows. And notice what he does here when he refers to God as his father. There's a capital F. But when he says in verse 38, that you are doing what you have heard from your father, it's a lowercase f. So just tuck that away in your mind for just a second. Verse 39, Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. Again, lowercase f. So their appeal to him is, we are the descendants of Abraham. And they took a lot of pride in that. Um, Because God had said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I choose you from all the people on earth. I choose you and through you, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. They're going to be my special people, my special people. They're going to be known as Israel. And it all starts with you, Abraham. So imagine if somebody in your ancestry... um, God had said something really miraculous to, or even more practically, your, your ancestor had fought in the Revolutionary War, was right there with George Washington. Your ancestor had signed the Declaration of Independence. You would know your lineage between that amazing moment and you here now. You know, the rest of us were like, my great-grandpa was somebody, and after that, I don't know, and then we take one of those tests, 23andMe, Ancestry.com. We've got to see that weird aunt who was bored and did all the research. She gives us the family history. But if your uh, ancestor played, it was Betsy Ross or played some amazing uh, role in history, you would know that story. You would be able to trace the generations back to that. Well, the Israelites, they all did that because they all took pride that their forefather Abraham had a direct commission from God. But here Jesus is saying, I don't think you are a descendant of Abraham because you're trying to kill me and Abraham wouldn't have done that. So they say, in verse 41, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. So now they're saying, well, if you're calling our relationship to Abraham in question, we'll just skip him and we'll say we're the descendants of God. We are the unique people of God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, lowercase f, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So just imagine you're one of these people that Jesus is speaking to, you're in the crowd. You have believed your whole life that you are a direct descendant of Abraham. That makes you a child of God because God had said to Abraham, this is going to be my people. So they say to Jesus, we are the special people of God, first because Abraham is our father, and then because of that, we know that God is our father. And Jesus, turning up the volume on offense, says, God is not your father. Abraham is not your father. You know who your father is? Satan is your father. 
I mean, that probably wouldn't offend you, but that would definitely <laughs> offend them. And then he goes on, Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If, if you're um, kind of on the fence today of faith, uh, you're definitely interested. Maybe you believe in God uh, in general, but whether or not Jesus uniquely and specifically represents uh, him. It's easy for us uh, to get into a prove it to me God mindset. That in order to push you over into the side of genuine faith, God needs to do something. Right? He's got to answer a prayer. He's got to be visible in some way. And, and Jesus here flips it on them. And he says, you prove to me that I'm not legitimate. And so if you're on the fence of faith today, I, I, I would just say instead of maybe saying to God, um, God, prove it to me that you're real and I will believe in you and, and believe in your son. Maybe he's saying to you, for, well, why don't you investigate? Why don't you see if I am not who I say I am? I'd encourage you today to investigate the claims of, of Jesus. Really do the research. And I think what you'll find is just as this crowd could not find fault in Jesus, you won't be able to find fault in him either. And, and maybe that will push you over into the faith. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? Because the sentence before he says, the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. I am not possessed by a demon, verse 49, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is the one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaim, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? I mean, Jesus is making some pretty bold claims. If you don't receive me, you don't receive uh, God the Father. Uh, and they're saying, if you believe in me, you obey my teaching, then you won't experience death. Because Jesus redefines what death is for those who follow in him. There is still that uh, curse of death from Genesis chapter 3 and death has a way of shattering our hearts. It, it does. But when we believe in Jesus, he, he redefines it. it, it uh, death does not become a total. Death does not become the end. There's something on the other side of it. That's why the Apostle Paul is wrestling in Philippians chapter 1. He says to the Philippians, I don't really know what to do. He's sitting in prison. He doesn't know what's going to happen at the end of that prison term. Uh, if I die, uh, I get to depart and be with Christ. And he says, that's far better. But if I stay here and alive, it means better ministry for me. But in his mindset, Paul said, if I die, then I'm immediately with the Lord. He says to the Corinthians to be uh, present with the Lord is to be absent from the body. Jesus said to the thief on the cross uh, that he was going to be in paradise with him. And when did he say that? Today. Today you'll be with me. Right? Jesus redefines all of that. And so they're upset about it. How, Abraham died. How are you claiming to be greater than Abraham, our, our father? Verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. 
Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up the stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. The reason they're upset is, is two parts. One, Jesus is claiming to have existed before their greatest patriarch. And that's why they say to him, you're not even 50 yet. This is crazy. Um, but he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, which would communicate that pre-existence. He says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus reaches back to the burning bush when God says to Moses, tell them I am sent you. Now Jesus is saying, I was the one in the burning bush. When the angel of the Lord was there in the burning bush and God is speaking out of the burning bush, Jesus says, I was there. I, I was before Abraham. When God was choosing Abraham to be the father of the great nation, I was there in that. And I mean, they just can't hear that. So they pick up stones and they try to kill him and he slips away. There are two things that I think we should walk away with today based on Jesus' teaching. I would love for you to write this down on the back of your listening guide. Number one, Sin takes prisoners. Sin takes prisoners. Back up at the top, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The difference between Israel back in Exodus chapter three, when they were in Egypt, is those Israelites, they knew they were prisoners. The Israelites that Jesus is speaking to here around the temple complex in John chapter eight, they are prisoners themselves. They just don't know it. Israel in Exodus 3 were slaves to the Egyptians. Jesus says that the Israelites that he's speaking to are slaves to sin. How do I know if I'm a prisoner in this way? You're not free to leave. I don't know if you read this week about these pastors who were getting arrested in California. I read that headline and I was like, oh, I need to pay attention. Are they doing a roundup? What's, what's going on? You know? <laughs> and uh, it's just really compelling and heartbreaking story because uh, there was this church in California that we're not doing so great budget-wise. And so they went out and recruited homeless people and they gave the homeless people the ability to stay in the church's facilities and gave them food. But then they made them go out and panhandle during the day and then all that money went to the church. And then they would lock them in at night so they couldn't get out. 
The, the, the way that the, the authorities found out about it is because a, a, a young woman uh, broke a window one night and climbed out and went and, and found a neighbor uh, who, who called the police for them. And so now all the pastors involved in this church uh, were, were getting arrested. I'm not doing that, uh, by the <laughs> way. So in, in case any of you are like, I don't know, what's... Our budget is fine, so it's just like, ooh. I mean, don't stop giving, but, you know... That's how you know if you're a prisoner. Are, are you able to leave? If you've ever been to a jail and you've had to go in for some reason, when that thing goes, you know, I am stuck in here. Somebody's going to have to release me. And Jesus says, if you sin, then you are a slave to sin. You're not free to leave. Uh, look at the way that James in the, the New Testament book of James, chapter one, turn there with me here. Uh, Google it. James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 uh, describes sin. James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted, listen to this, when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It says that when we are being tempted and we give in to that temptation, we are dragged away. Isn't is another phrase that you've heard before? They were dragged to prison. Right? The, the picture, when you and I give in to temptation, sin comes and grabs us by the throat, drags us away. Right? But that's not how temptation comes to us, is it? Temptation comes to us as a gentle shepherd. Listen to me. That little voice in our head says, listen to me and I will lead you to still waters. I will lead you to green pastures. If you, if you just do this, it's not going to be that big of a deal. It, it will fill you up. It will be the thing. It will be a release for you. It will be good. It's, it's, it's something that you're, you're needing. It comes to us as a gentle shepherd and then we give into it. It grabs us by the throat and drags us away. And then we're imprisoned to it. What Jesus is teaching tells us that temptation is not just a simple choice that we are making. There's way more at stake in choosing sin than we might imagine. If you sin, then you are a slave to sin. I mean, there in this room right now is unlimited kingdom potential. I mean, honestly, let's, let's just get for real right here. If, if you and I started to, to take this seriously, that what God says in the scripture is real and could be real in our life, then every, the whole world would be turned upside down. Um, if, if I got for real about it, even more than, than hopefully I am right now, I, my neighborhood is just five minutes from here. My whole neighborhood would just whoosh, um, the, where you work, if you started to walk like Jesus walked, um, 
it'd be a totally different place. Whole world turned upside down by 120 people after Jesus' resurrection. Unlimited potential in this room right now to change the world. It was our eighth birthday a couple of Sundays ago as a church. And so I've been praying recently um, that by year 10, so two years from now, that we will have 100 missionaries somewhere around the world that have come from our church. Uh, Just so you know, we're not at 50. uh, We're at seven. So lots of work to do. But I think... And I believe that in our church right now, there are a hundred missionaries. I mean, there's probably at least 30 in this room right now. But you, you know what? I don't want to go. And you don't want to go either. Because sin has us by the throat. And even right now is saying, you're not going anywhere. Ephesians chapter 6 says that Satan has schemes, has methodia for bringing us down, has methods, has strategies for how to take you out, to take all that unlimited kingdom potential and shove it off the table. And when I look at my own life here as a suburbanite in Cyprus, Texas, I find two things have me by the throat. And, and, and you maybe would write these down, try these on, see if they're true for you. The first one is competitive comfort has me by the throat. Everybody wants to be comfortable. We will find as much comfort as, as is possible in every situation that we are in. That is uh, human nature. If you go into the hospital, you're going to try to, even in the pain of being there, try to get as comfortable as possible. I remember when I was in the hospital uh, 10 years ago, I was there for five days and that's just the whole battle. How can, while I'm in pain and feel very sick, how can I just make this as comfortable as possible? Well, you think about the situation that we live in. We live in Cypress, Texas, most of us, in 2019. That's already a huge start on comfort. And then in our comfort, we're gonna try to make it as comfortable as possible. And then you add on top of that our competitive nature. So not only are we trying to make our situation as comfortable as we can imagine, we have all of these friends and peers to which to compare our comfort to their comfort. And if we see that they have more comfort than we have, then we got to have what they have. So if their vacation looks more comfortable than our vacation, well, that's where I'm going next. If their kids look like they're having an easier time in school, then we're going to do whatever it is to get our kids to be at that place. And so we just try to keep one-upping one another in comfort, which is fine. Unless God says, no, I want you to be uncomfortable. Unless God says to your heart right now, hey, bad news, you're one of those 100 Then that competitive comfort says, don't worry, I got you. I got you. That comfort came to us as a gentle shepherd and has stolen all of our world-changing, upside-down, living kingdom potential. 
The second thing that has many of us by our necks is dangerous safety. There is a safety that is good. It honors God. Uh, do not stick your hand in a paper shredder. Uh, do not try to fly a helicopter if you have not been trying, trained to fly a helicopter. That's all wisdom. That's all safety. Uh, in the event of a fire, please exit in an orderly fashion. That's all good. Uh, there is a safety that is dangerous. If God is asking you to step out on faith and you go to the edge of that cliff and look over and go, mm -mm, pass. I don't know what's going to happen if I jump off that cliff. That safety is dangerous for your soul. Uh, that safety is dangerous for our church. If one thing can bring our church down, it's this. Because the terrifying thing about this is church attendance can be huge. And Satan can have us all by the throat. And here's what I'm convinced about. I'm convinced that all of us today, we want to unlock all of that kingdom potential. We just need somebody to go first. We need somebody out here to stand up and say, I'll go first. I will sell everything that we have. I will put it all in a bank account. We will downsize so that we can live in ready position. For whatever God would have me to do, I am totally ready. I can go in any direction. In the meantime, I want to go to Disney World. In the meantime, I'd like to go to the lake. But I have made sure, as God has made possible, that there is nothing in my life that will keep me in a place that God does not want me to be. A.W. Tozer called it the blessedness of possessing nothing. Everything that we have we hold just like this. And while we have it and enjoy it, because God is a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children, we hold them open-handed so that if he comes and he takes some of that comfort, we're like, that's fine. I enjoyed it while I have it, but I don't possess it. And by not possessing it, it doesn't possess me. I think we all want that. And we just need somebody in their circle of friends to just stand up and say, hey, we'll go first. We will stop the cycle of upgrading and we will begin the cycle of downgrading for Jesus' name so that we can be in ready position. So if I am one of those 100, as soon as he say, says go, I go. But... Competitive comfort and dangerous safety for so many of us are prison doors that have been slammed shut. That would have been helpful information in my 20s, but now I'm in my 40s and that train has left the station. But the second thing that I want you to write down, the last thing, is Jesus of Nazareth releases prisoners. That's what he says to them in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth